This is CliffCentral.com. Sanmanan hey. welcome Wednesday morning. Concert show, 9 o'clock. Hello, Dumelang Rorasang. Hey, Tap, good morning. How are you, my friend? I'm good, my friend. How are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm great. I'm great. Our series continues, White Privilege, episode three. Another week of uh, setting ourselves up for punishment <laughs> on social media. <laughs> Whoa, what happened last week, man? Philip, people went absolutely ballistic on us. It was good, though. Good interaction. Thank you so much to everyone who listened, who interacted on Facebook, on Twitter. We look forward to having your views again today. So let's just set the scene a little bit. Last week, we spoke. Or, or, the first episode we ever did on white privilege was what is white privilege? The second episode was why is white privilege a problem? And this episode, we're trying to unpack a little bit of the psychology of white privilege as well as could it be used for a force for good? Yeah, could it be a force for good? Uh, so you discover you've got white privilege. Maybe our show has done, has achieved what we thought it would achieve. Somebody sitting at home thinking, hmm, okay, this thing is a thing, number one. Secondly, uh, it's a problem. Now what do I do about it? Mm. Do I just sit here feeling guilty or, you know, how do I, how do I do something about it? And, and if we're just practical, the likelihood is that in the medium to short, in the short to medium term, you're not going to rid yourself of white privilege. So could you take that as an energy and, 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 and turn it or convert it into a force for good? So I think it's that, but there's also this thing of just the psychology of, of white privilege and and what it has done both to white people and to black people in South Africa, and uh, what that means, you know, we we've got these un- inherited identities of white and black. We've heard people deflecting and and denying reuniting. and defending and defending. What does that mean? Why are they? What? Why is the is a response to white privilege to deny and deflect and? Uh, you know it better. It's, it's yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, but, the, the three, okay. the triple D. It, the triple D is yeah. to deny, defend, or deflect. Yeah. Uh, and sorry, it's not. It's deny, mm-hmm. diminish. What does that and mean? And deflect. So deny that it exists. White privilege does not exist. And here's the five reasons why it doesn't exist. Yes. To diminish it is to say that white privilege is. It does exist, but it's really not the biggest problem that we have. Yeah. And to defend it is to say, yeah, I've got white privilege, but you know, like, what am I supposed to do? Yeah, but there's also black privilege. Exactly. Exactly. So you're onto it. Yeah. I think one of the interesting uh, discussion points that came out of Twitter uh, last week was this idea of, uh, you know, we have an objective uh, show and that uh, you know we're not being objective let me be clear we have not got an objective show we've got a subjective show uh, this is a subjective show we have our opinions but what we need to do is we need to put them out there first yeah so we have never actually i don't go to journalist school i have never proclaimed to be a journalist i am by proclaimed. N- i am by no means objective on this issue um I, I bring an opinion and I, what I do do is I create the space for others to disagree with me and to prove me wrong. And I'm very happy to be proven wrong, honestly. Mm-hmm. That's why we keep bringing and inviting people onto the show our who Twitter disagree guests, with us. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. So, so yeah, we, we, we definitely have an opinion and we're going to share it. All right. Uh, let's start, let's start the show with a, a little review of, of last week and then let's get into it. If you are on a WeChat, you can hook us up. Uh, cliffcentral.com is where you need to hit us up. Give us your opinions on can white privilege be used as a force for good? We're also on Twitter at Rory Shabalala and at Yebo underscore L-E-V-Y. You can also just uh, hashtag Konza show and uh, we will pick up 
all your discussion points, all your thoughts, and all your questions. Come on, man. Let us know what you're thinking about this. Here's what, what happened privilege? last week. What is the nature of white privilege? How does it operate? Well, the problem of white privilege is, is very small, a small problem. There's two types of privilege. There's a black privilege, which is a reaction to white privilege. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that black and white are equal? No. Do you believe they're born equal? Yes. Deflecting, diminishing, or denying our white privilege. Okay, you can call it white privilege, but I'd prefer to call it apartheid mentality. No, she lost political privilege already at birth. In which way? Because she's a white person. I mean, that's absolute rubbish. I'm going to interrupt you here. That's nonsense. No, 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 hold on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this guy's been speaking for the last five minutes here, pretending that um, I'm, I'm being rude by not listening to him. You're People, being disrespectful. I, mean, I didn't interrupt. You're the person who phoned in last week and said that blacks can immigrate to Africa. Unearned privilege automatically comes over you as a white person as soon as a black person is discriminated against. When you talk about white unemployment in South Africa doubling, let's be clear. We're talking about single-digit um, doubling from four to eight. Let solution. me offer you a solution. If I was to say to you, uh, you're privileged by virtue of living in a suburb and so on. Why don't you move into the township? This country is so poor. You know, the majority of people are so poor that I don't think I could accept. Why is it's it not bold, bold. to courageous. live with black people? It's courageous because it's not exactly what my uh, parents' generation would have necessarily accepted. So but forget your parents. You've got your own opinion. Tell me why this is bold for you. All that, that proves is, is that you can have a white <laughs> skin and still say something stupid on radio. We believe that our, our prosperity in this country is under attack. We believe that our rights are under attack. Actually, if anything, black people in this country are rather incredibly patient. But as soon as you get into the workplace, it's like you still hang out with white people only because it's just too much effort. I'm done. You need to stop explaining to white people how their privilege <laughs> operates and they've got to find a white person like Andrew over here who can maybe have the conversation with them without black bodies present. Wow. Last week's show, I have committed to an AFRI forum discussion on white privilege. That's what came out of this. And Eusebius and I are done. We're done. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you, You can Rory. go on your own you, and have that conversation <laughs> without any black bodies present, as Eusebius oh, said. Oh, man. Because <laughs> we're done. To be honest, I'm not looking forward to this. Eh? I really no, am not looking forward no, to going to an AFRI no, forum no, meeting. No, Andrew. No, Andrew. You... You want to be engaged in this. You want to be part of the solution. Part of it means going and confronting Oof. what, and, and you know, here's the thing. And this is part of what today's show is about, right? That's why we've got a psychologist in here. We've got a world, a world class, probably one of the best psychoanalysts if in the world, the best, if yes. not the best is this thing. You know, we dismiss it as a racist bimbo. What do they know? But what's happening on a psychological level? What are the fears? What are the underlying fears that are causing people to just react in the way they're reacting? The, the other thing is, how do we start to rewire our minds? You know, so there's a whole ish thing about neuroplasticity and so on. If this is a mental issue that South Africa has, how do we begin to rewire our minds uh, for a world beyond white privilege and to have the conversations that, that this that this requires us to have. Now, a counterintuitive reflection that I had, Andrew, is that mm. maybe the problem is that it's not about having more conversations about this. It's actually about us keeping quiet. There's just too many of us having we, – we, we're talking too much and we're not listening and we're not just – you know, what does this mean? And, and let's, just, let's just understand, you know, because when we rush to defend, to deflect, to deny, to diminish and all of those things and to accuse and to criticize and to lambaste and so on – no one's listening to anybody else. Maybe if we all just shut up a little bit, 
uh, the answer might be there. I yeah, don't know. I'm not a psychologist, so I think I think we need to bring in uh, some some psychoanalysis here. Uh, Mark Solms is on the line from Cape Town. He joins us on Skype. This man is incredible. I have to just tell you, Rory, mm. he is incredible. I've heard him speak before. I feel privileged to have him uh, on the line because he is jetting all over the world. Uh, Mark Solms is uh, the head of Solms Delta. He's also a psychoanalyst and a professor of neuropsychology. Yo. Professor Solms, can you hear us? I can. Glad to be here. Wow, there we go. We're just going to put you up a little bit. Um Professor, have I got all your titles? I don't, I don't want to diminish some of the, the amazing stuff you've done in your life. Well, uh, yes, you have. The, the, the thing that um, you mentioned, Solms Delta, I, uh, that's a, a farm uh, down here in Cape Town. And um, that's been the platform of my tackling the issue that you're talking about. All right, so let, let's let's just set the scene quickly. Um, we've also got some some amazing people in studio, which we want to welcome and, and say hello to. Firstly, we have a listener, a guest, a Twitter guest. Now, I'm amazed, Jordan, that you've come on air because the last few people that came on air got lambasted, but well done. Thank you for coming. We really appreciate it. Have you got my tequila yet? <laughs> <laughs> she wants tequila because she's very nervous. We also have Bradley in studio. Bradley, uh, it's doctor, isn't it? I'm sure. No, Not no doctor. It's, just, it's just Bradley. Just Bradley. Okay. Yes. Bradley's a, a psychologist as well. Lots of people uh, asking questions. Bring your questions to the platform on Twitter, on WeChat, and let's hear them. Um, let's start with you, uh, Professor Solms. Tell us your story because it is an absolutely unique story in South Africa. It shouldn't be a unique story, but is um, about Psalms Delta. What went through your mind? What happened? And, and give us some context. Well, it relates to what was just being said a few minutes ago about um, talking too much as opposed to listening. Um, I, I left, Well, first of all, I should say that I was born in South Africa in the bad old days. Um, I'm uh, vintage 1961. And um, I left beautiful the country model, in the mid nineteen. <laughs> Say that again. I said it's a beautiful model, vintage. <laughs> I I left South Africa um, in the mid 1980s to to skip the uh, conscription, which we still had those days, and then I came back after everything changed here, and I took over this farm uh, just outside Cape Town in Franschhoek, and I had the idea that I would use this um, little piece of the country that belongs to me as an opportunity to try to tackle. This uh, this problem that your show is about white privilege. You know what 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 can I do as an ordinary citizen to try to rectify my own immediate environment? And so I met with the farm workers, and I must emphasize that farms in South Africa, especially down here, these old farms, they come with people. You know that's a sort of a shocking concept, but it's it's uh, it's the truth. When you inherit or acquire land. They're people who live on that land and they're kind of your responsibility. And, you know, each phrase I use, you know, sort of sends a chill down one's spine when you realize that that's the kind of situation that prevails on farms in South Africa. You literally almost own a community of people when you own a piece of land. So I had all sorts of ideas about how we're going to transform this farm and we're going to try to align it with the, you know, the values of the, the new country that I'd returned to. And it was really impossible. You know, this is the, the point about talking too much. It was impossible to begin to have a conversation with farm workers about how we are going to 
uh, align this farm with the with the aspirations of the what was then being called the reconstruction and development of the country and so on. Uh, there was just not enough trust, not enough common ground, n- not enough belief that that a conversation of that kind is even allowed. You know, it's, uh, people are scared of the farmer, and the farmer, in my case, you know, just had too many big ideas, and uh, you know, <laughs> didn't have enough ears to listen to what the experience of the farm workers was. So, you know, to to, to try to tell you a very big story very briefly. Uh, I started to make some changes by myself because it was impossible for us to plan together, literally impossible. They just, you know, didn't respond to questions, just felt uncomfortable and sort of tried to get out of my you know, presence as quickly as possible. You know, who's this guy and what's he talking about? And um, so I, I started making a few changes, you know, changing the employment contracts and changing living conditions and so on on the farm. And uh, once the farm workers realized I really was different from my predecessor, the most unexpected thing happened, which is that they c- came to the conclusion that I was an idiot. <laughs> and, um, you know, this guy doesn't know how it works. You know, let's make hay while the sun shines. And so people started pitching up late for work, leaving early, in fact, not coming on Mondays at all. Um, you know, and, and, and little bits and pieces started going missing. And very quickly, I found myself feeling, you know, like a white farmer is supposed to feel, you know, annoyed. And uh, frustrated, and you know who are these people, and why aren't they responding to my, you know, uh, goodwill? And you know, the what I think I was experiencing there was the force of our. Mark, are you there? Okay, we'll have to get him back on the line as soon as possible. Try and uh, reconnect to him. Um, Rory, he's talking a little bit about this amazing place called Psalms Delta. Mm, um, Psalms Delta Winery in, in the Cape. Exactly. And yeah. it's such an interesting it's such an interesting phenomenon that this psychoanalyst, this professor of neuropsychology would buy a farm in uh, Franschhoek. And you know, wine farms are some of the most like some of the scariest places for me personally in terms of that slave master mentality where you've got recall the dop system mm. where people get paid laborers get paid in wine mm. so they basically link them to alcoholism and uh and you you can't do anything about it and so they have this dependency on having to work on these farms they're drunk they have a huge habitual problem um and <clears throat> no farmer or no White farmer seems to care about. Well, let me, let me correct you there, Andrew. Uh, he said he inherited the farm. It was a family farm, and he inherited it. And I think it speaks to this idea of inherited identities in South Africa. Um, this idea of inherited identities in South Africa. So last week we asked uh, one of our guests, and we said, you know, are people are 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 South Africans born so so a black child and a white child born today are they equal? And the answer was yes, they're equal. So then the question is, at which point do they become unequal? And it's these inherited identities. So Mm. does a child who is born with white skin, is that child predisposed to behaving in a white way? And does a, a black child born with black skin... Is, is, is he predisposed to, to acting in a black way or does that identity, uh, does he inherit that identity, you know, as he slowly starts to, to, to get into it? So I'd love to hear from, from Mark and certainly from Bradley, uh, how then this, this, this white privilege starts to, to, to because we are not born, you know, in this mindset of white privilege. And Mark Soam speaks about confronting the true story so maybe let's get back to him and just get the let him wrap up what the true story was and then let's get into this conversation mark are you with us now mark are you there 
not yet. Let, let me ask. Yes, I am. Oh, I'm there. sorry about. I'm here. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah. We're good. We're good. Um, carry on, please, uh, just with your story, and then let's get into some questions about it. Okay, so um, I'm sorry, first of all, about the connection. This is one of the joys of farm life. Um, the uh, So what, what I did, you know, uh, to cut a long story short, was realizing that we were somehow dealing with the consequences of, the, of a long history, you know, that there were ways in which we saw each other that couldn't just be wished away. I, I had this idea of bringing in archaeologists and historians from my university, UCT, to come. We stopped farming on the farm, and uh, we, we, we literally dug the place up under the guidance of archaeologists. So rather than digging in the fields and the vineyards, the farm workers dug up the property under supervision of uh, experts in that sort of thing. And we learned together as a community on the farm what happened here. How did, this, how did we come to this pass? And, uh, you know, that was an incredible process of, of finding, for example, uh, 50 yards from my front door, a Bushman settlement site, 6,000 years old, you know, sort of the physical evidence that there were people living here 6,000 years ago and that their descendants uh, are among the people living on this farm today. So it was a very weird experience for some of the farm workers you know, to, as one of them, Benny Daniels, actually said to me, he holding this little stone tool that he'd found on, the, uh, on that Bushman settlement site, a beautiful little blade. He said, you see, Professor, my people were here before yours. And it was like a personal discovery, a personal realization of this sort of truth that his people were here before mine, a hell of a long time before mine. And it sort of raises the question. So just explain again, how come it's your farm? You know, and why am I working for you? Yeah. You know, and facing those historical facts after the taking of these farms, you know, by the early settlers, there's and the and the veritable genocide, you know, the absolute destruction of the of the indigenous people of this part of the world. You know, there, then came slavery. We we brought by the 1690s, which is when my farm was established. There were more slaves in the Cape than there were settlers. You know, so we had to then face that historical fact. I mean, and, and it's not an abstraction. My house was built by slaves. And, uh, you know, the, the, the children and, and the descendants of those slaves are the people who are living on the farm today. So what that sort of clarifies is that it's not a normal uh, labor contract. It's not people selling me their labor, you know, by choice. It's kind of we're deposited here. Uh, by that history. And of course, after the abolition of slavery came apartheid. And the farm workers remembered only too well what it was like to live on a, this farm um, under apartheid. And we told our own life stories. And that was a very important part of the whole thing, listening to each other's experience of what was it like to grow up under apartheid. And it's, you know, th that sort of thing really changed our relationships forever. And what I'm leading up to is that it's a very painful, difficult, awkward, unwelcome set of facts that we really have to face. You can't just say, okay, things are going to be different now. You have to face this enormous debt, this, this enormous burden of, of responsibility of what was done in our names. And I know it was done generations ago, uh, but not that long ago. I mean, my, my generation, we lived through apartheid. But, you know, the, 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 this is, I think, one of the essential facts about white privilege is that this is propagated, that, that the weight of that history continues into the present. 
And I think that that's what we need to first of all look at. How did we get to be in the position that we're in now? Then we know what we can make a diagnosis and we can see what is ailing us and what needs treating. And I don't think that us white people want to look at that because it's very awkward. Mark, uh, so this is this is quite interesting. This awkwardness and not wanting to look at it. Uh, in 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 your TED talk, you speak about uh, telling and confronting the true story. Uh, how did you get to a point at which you were not only okay to engage with this true story, but were also willing to own it as 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 part of that true story, and perhaps more fundamentally, to replace the stories that had sedimented in your mind and psyche over many years. With this new emerging truth that was happening, I mean, you know, it could have been easy to just say, look, I wasn't there. I was not part of it. I'm simply just getting on with things. But you, you, you not only confronted what you call the true story, but you also allowed it to replace the story that had probably been put there over many, many years. How did that happen? Well, um, I, I, there are two things to say about that. The one is that I had the uh, opportunity of living outside of the country for 14 years. So I, I, and I think you get a sort of a perspective on South Africa when you live outside of South Africa. To, to live in a normal society as I did, I lived in London for, for that time. I don't mean London's perfect, but it's, you know, it doesn't suffer from this uh, thing that we, are, that, we are, that we are burdened with in South Africa. So I think it helps to be able to gain some distance and gain some perspective. Not that I'm recommending that that's what we all have to do, but in, in my case, that, that I think made a big difference to be able to see things you know, relatively um, objectively, because I wasn't s- stuck in the middle of it, no, and um, yeah. you know, and then it's a matter. Of, the second thing is, it's a matter of the alternative. You know, I mean, I, I very rapidly saw on, you know, as I told you in my little story, I saw what the alternative is. The alternative is horrible. You know, it's uh, if you deny the truth, if you don't actually face the 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 enormously powerful feelings that come with the the history that's brought us to the point that we're at now. You know, you're not going to get away with it. It's not as if you have a you have a happy alternative. You know, I think that if we don't face those facts, it's worse than actually facing them. So in the short term, you know, there's some pain and some guilt and some fear and shame and whatnot that needs to be confronted. But in the longer run, you know, you really are in a much better position, a much more sustainable, much more workable position. My life on this farm, and it's just a microcosm. I'm using myself as an example. You know, I, I, my life on this farm is much better than it was, precisely because I have faced the facts that we would rather not look at about our past. Mark, we, we've sort of jumped the gun here. Just, just tell us how the story ends quickly, so we can then get into the conversation. So, you had the part where you're digging up history. The history you faced the facts of what. Uh, history is telling you then what happened uh, uh, so that we can get uh, our, our, our other studio guests into the conversation okay well the essence of it is it's about who owns the land you know when you look at the history of what happened this this land was taken by our ancestors of people like me and we still have it you know the the land is still mine and the farm workers are living on my land and that's that's a, a metaphor for the whole country you know the the perpetrators of apartheid and, and colonization before that still have the goods. The economy is still in our hands. And uh, so on my farm, it comes down to that. I still own the land. And then you have to face the question, well, what are you going to do about it? You know, and the obvious answer is, well, I suppose ethically, if you look at it purely ethically, the right thing to do when you have stolen goods is to give them back. 
And then you start talking turkey. You know, then you start facing who you really are. Because I came parachuting in here thinking I was this good guy who wanted to make, you know, life better for, you know, for everyone on my farm. But I didn't actually think I'm going to have to give it back. You know, but that's really tackling the essence of the problem of what's, of what happened in this country over, over the last 350 years. So then I had to confront the fact. I mean, first of all, I had all these excuses. Um, here in this part of the country, we call them cock stories. Um, <laughs> saying things like, well, it wasn't me who took the farm. It happened a long time ago. What about food security? You know, not, not forgetting this is a wine farm. You know, all, all of these sorts of um, uh, excuses uh, came to my mind. And in the end, I had to face the truth, which is this. And I'm not proud to say it, but it really is the truth. I had to confront the fact that I don't want to give it back. I don't want to. On the one hand, I should. That's the morally and ethically correct thing to do. But on the other hand, I have this self-interest. I want to keep it. It's beautiful. I want to give it to my children. You know, and these are the kinds of things we have to be honest about and we have to face. So, you know, that's then when I, ha I had to go back to the farm workers who had gone through this process of digging the place up together with them to, so that we could confront what are we dealing with, what really needs to be put right. And I had to confess to them, you know, I know we can all see that it's about the ownership of the land. But the truth of the matter is I can't bring myself to give it back. Now what are we going to do? And I think that's the sort of conversation that we really need to have. In my case, what we concluded, having had that conversation, was that I would use my farm as collateral, as, 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 as security, for the farm workers to be able to take out a bank loan and buy the farm next door. So in that way, I get to keep my farm, but they get to be landowners too. And then we have a proper sort of partnership, you know, that I'm giving something up, but it's realistic. I'm taking a risk or I'm facing a risk, but I don't have to, you know, I don't have to forego what's, what, what's mine, what's in my own personal self-interest, as long as I simultaneously recognize other people have self-interest too. And uh, on that basis, we built this, uh, what Psalms Delta is today, which is a partnership between me and the farm workers in which we're equal uh, shareholders in the company that farms these farms that belong to us respectively. And I think that that's, a, that's not the only way to go about it, but I think it, it, it sort of touches on the heart of the matter that one has to confront these very painful, very unwelcome, but nevertheless absolutely true facts about how we, uh, what white privilege is about. Jeez, mm, mm, mm. that's, that's, that's quite hectic. Uh, for lack of better vocabulary, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of startled right now, to be honest. Yeah, just uh, deciding, just so. I mean, obviously, a lot happens, uh, and I'd like to get Bradley in here. Bradley is is a psychologist, um, uh, and of course, Mark is a psychoanalyst. So this is going to be an interesting conversation. <laughs> uh, Bradley, so obviously, Professor Solms went through all of these feelings. You know, first it was uh, recognition and so on, but. How do you get to a point with with your patients, perhaps, and, and coming in and consulting? How do you confront the situation where you recognize what the issue is, but now you need to somehow transition towards action? And that is what's happening with a lot of people who are in white privilege. Okay, fine, I'm in white privilege, uh, but how do I transition to action? What are some of the challenges that they face, and so on? All right, so let's uh, let's start at the beginning. Um, so, firstly, you know, we speak about white privilege. I think we need to understand what it is first. And um, just to point out to you that perhaps this very show became a microcosm of that very same thing. I mean, you know, Professor Swams had a whole three minutes talking about his experience with white privilege, right? Oh, which is, which is great. 
<coughs> so let me yeah. let me just let me just uh, position that for you because yeah. the point is that white privilege is about power. Mm. It's also about the power of stories and what and whose story is more powerful than the next. So if we actually look at the definition of white privilege, which I just quickly googled. Um, and basically says white privilege, um, <clears throat> so when I read that use, white privilege is a set of advantages or immunities that white people benefit from on a daily basis beyond those common to all others. So white privilege can exist without a white, white people's conscious knowledge of its presence and it helps to maintain the racial hierarchy in a country. Okay. Mm, mm. So white privilege happens around the world. Um, also in my experience, having lived in, 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 in the US and, and, um, specifically in New York, um, white privilege also shows its face there. However, structurally, it looks different to what it does in South Africa, purely because the racial demographics are different. So if you're aware in the United States, um, sort of white as a racial group is sort of by far the most dominant group in terms of, um, <clears throat> in terms of, um, representation. Right across the whole of the U.S. Where in South Africa, the landscape is slightly different, where black people are a majority in terms of racial demographic and white people being a minority. However, in South Africa, because of institutionalized racism, such as apartheid, um, white people maintained um, power all along. Right. So now, post-1994, and you made the suggestion earlier, um, Rory, saying that a white child born today and a black child born today are the same. I'm going to put to you that they are not. I they cannot be. Um, you said that. You no, said no, no. I said, I said <coughs> born out of the womb, they're equal. And then immediately they inherit identities. But out of the womb, they, they're not born okay, equal. They cannot be born me. equal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's look at, so, so let's look at, um, <coughs> um, I'm assuming that biologically a white child will be born of a white mother and a black child will be born of a black mother as well. So if we just have to do a statistical inference, Right, there's a good, there's a higher probability of a white mother being more privileged than a black mother. So listen to my word carefully. So I'm saying, if we have to do a statistical inference, mm. um, there's a higher probability that the white child being born is already born in a more privileged setting. So if you look at sort of um, a similar case study when it comes to things like healthcare, um, I can't remember the title of the book exactly, but basically um, the book looks at um, three individuals um, in New York who had heart attacks. So the same disease, three individuals from three different backgrounds. And it basically, it basically poses the question, which of the three will make a better recovery? Right. So the first one is a stockbroker, downtown New York. The second person I think was um, uh, sort of like more working class somewhere in Brooklyn. And the third person was an immigrant. Mm. Right. So even just in terms of the hospitals that they were taken to by virtue of where it happened, Right, the person downtown went to prestigious St. Thomas and had the great, the best care. Whereas the people in Brooklyn, I think that the next second guy was a black guy, so happened, um, but he was um, sort of working class, working for Con Edison or one of those places. So he had two options, but the Russian immigrant lady had absolutely no option. She had to go to a Brooklyn hospital, so there's no chance for her to go into Manhattan. And out of the three, over the longitudinal study, obviously the um, stockbroker made the best recovery. One. Um, his wife, who was a stay-at-home uh, uh, wife, uh, also was more educated. She was able to look at changing his diet and all of that. Whereas the worst in the case was the Russian immigrant who was not able to, um, you know, she basically, when she had the heart attack, she basically said to her husband, you know, let's give it a week and see what's happening and give me some more vodka. So basically she had that heart attack for a whole week because the consideration of going to hospital was 
so much more, um, like it was so much more of a problem than thinking about my health comes first, right? So the position that I'm trying to uh, posit for you is that <clears throat> at this stage, by virtue of just having the exterior demographic, we're already not equal because of the landscape in which we are. So Professor Psalms, is it? Mm-hmm, um, spoke about his um, uh, history with the farm and all of that, and that's all great. But already we're starting there with a legacy, mm. right? A legacy which Professor Psalm was able to, I guess, have access to through some privilege. But what I understand for the reason for me being here is not really to tackle that because it's not really to look at um, the structural differences. That's a more so- sociological um, commentary and an analysis. So psychologically, what are we saying? So let me <coughs> let me maybe just jump in there. Mm-hmm. So this is part. This is a third. Sh- this is a sh- third show of a four four show series mm-hmm. uh, where we we went into understanding white privilege and we went into understanding is this thing a problem? So today, yes, we want to now understand uh, how does how does it how does it act on on let's say the black mind and the white mind. Sure. Um, and and if I may just disagree with the notion that sure. the, uh, Mark Soames got 30 minutes because of white privilege. No, that's because the, the, the focus of the show is can white privilege be used uh-huh. as a force for good and we needed a story like Mark Soames's uh, to put here and say is this genuine or not? And that is why you're here, to help us analyze sure. it. Yeah. So, um, also, you know, uh, white privilege is a very serious topic. Mm. Um, so, obviously, um, you know, what I was saying there was really sort of tongue-in-cheek, and I'm oh. sure I'm sure Professor Sam <laughs> caught, up, caught, up, caught that nuance around that. It was yeah. just uh, as I was still taste-testing your coffee, <laughs> uh, which we spoke about in advance. We did. Um, so, now that we sort of slightly warmed up, mm. so white privilege is, as I said, it's an awkward topic. It brings heat into a room like you've never seen, Yeah. right? Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of guilt around it. Um, I mean, if I, and, and, and to be honest with you, the first time I really experienced it was when I was living in the United States. So get this, coming from a country like South Africa where apartheid was institutionalized not that long ago, going to the US and suddenly being conscious of my race and being conscious of how that affects how I'm positioned in mm. this new homeland for that temporary period. So the, the big thing about white privilege is that one, so, so let me look at, give you some, some, um, some thoughts about some studies. So, um, I can't remember the details offhand now, but I remember that <clears throat> the study looked at what white privilege was and it looked at, specifically looked at, um, I think the, the, the psychological construct of, um, empathy and I think resilience as well are the two constructs it looked at. And, um, it basically came to the conclusion that in the United States, I'm very clear about where this is positioned, um, white the, the sample of, 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 of white children that were used in the study had a lower um, level of sort of, for example, flexibility, empathy, um, understanding across cultures. And the, the author of the research takes the stance and says that, well, if you're in the dominant ideology, right? So in the American terms, so if you're white, Anglo-Saxon, the wasp, right? If you're in that dominant ideology, the golden boy, let's call it the golden boy. Um, there basically is absolutely no reason as to why you would have to change um, change anything. Like you don't need to understand um, anyone. You don't need to change your viewpoint. There's just absolutely no reason to um, <clears throat> to basically do do any of that, right? Mm. Um, whereas if you are um, a Latina a Latin, Latina girl or um, an African American um, female, you by necessarily need to be flexible and adaptable because you need to change how you relate to the world depending on where you are in the social spectrum. 
Bradley, sorry, I, I need to interrupt you, partly because I don't understand you, and partly because I feel like we've dealt with a lot of this in the last two episodes. Sure. I feel like what we're trying to get to right now is the emotional part of this story, the, the idea of where does this leave us? And I think this is, you know, so I'm sorry to cut you forward, and I think that's probably a symptom of white privilege there, uh, but I apologize about that. But I really want us to get into the so, emotional side <coughs> of this Sure, so let's thing. do that right now. Please. So what's going on for you right now? What's going on for me right now? Yeah, as a white, as as one of two white people amongst four people, what's going on for you right now in that very interjection there? Um, I am feeling frustrated. Sure. What else are you feeling? I'm feeling like you haven't really taken into consideration why you are here. Okay. Tell and me more I'm about f- I'm feeling like yeah, that's what I'm feeling right now. Mm. So. If I position to you that that's exactly how the feelings that are described when this topic is discussed, would you believe me? A feeling of frustration. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Why do you think that is? Because he's diminishing, denying, and deflecting his white privilege. But that's not what I'm doing right now. It's a possibility. I'm saying that I'm frustrated with you because I don't feel like you've come into the show researched by what we're doing here. Okay. That's what I'm saying. All right. Rory, would you agree with that? No, so I, look, I'm all, I'm all for, I'm all for these awkward silences. Honestly, I think, <laughs> I, think, I, think that, I think we're learning. I think we're learning something here, and that's why, and and, and that's we're why I'm, off topic. That's, that's why I'm, I'm not. About. That's why I'm not jumping into this conversation. Good. I think it's it's important to. So, so, let's, so let's let's let's, sorry, let's mm-hmm. let me let me let's do this. Let's take a break. I want to jump back to to Mark. I'm sorry we've been holding you for so long. Uh, give us two seconds, and we will be back right after this. I was young, out of control, so, drinking, drowning, brewing the storm. I was never brave. Bengi Iguala, battled, crawled, crashed. I was never brave. Fled, bled, followed, never led. If only someone had stepped in, pulled me out. That's why I became the mentor I wish I'd had. Help under 18 say no to alcohol. Sign up at sabstories.coza. Hashtag be the mentor, a South African brewers initiative. Back in uh, studio here at Cliff Central, it's the Konza Show. We are talking third episode of White Privilege. Why uh, could white privilege be used as a force for good? We've had uh, Mark Solms on uh, on the the uh, on the phone on the on, on the Skype, uh, calling from Cape Town, telling us a little bit about Solms Delta. Uh, we've got Bradley in studio here, who's a psychologist, who I'm having a good disagreement with, and we've also got one of our Twitter followers who's been very quiet. Jordan, uh, she's also here. She's been uh, commenting throughout the series about her thoughts on this. Uh, Jordan, let's just. Bring you in here quickly, Andrew. May, may I interrupt? So this show, this show is going to be it's going to be all over the place. But I think so. There's an elephant in the room, right? And and I think Bradley Bradley surfaced it, right? To say, look, the the black guy is not behaving in the way that uh, is expected of him, and so we're going to interject him and so on. Mark Soames got 30 minutes to speak. Uh, he's only had five minutes to speak. I think this is a good. This is just a good lesson for us. So, so let's. <coughs> I think we shouldn't try and run away from it. Let's let's have right. this moment of, no, of Rory, awkwardness. Okay, right? I'm going to interrupt. Go you ahead, then. Jordan. Yes. Um, I sent you, you guys an email last week to say this has been hashed. This has been going back and forth and back and forth. What are we going to do to move forward? Sure. Because that is what these discussions can go on for forever. Forever. <coughs> and as Mike said. It's a case of sitting down and listening. And I said to you, my first email that I sent to you, it's like a a mini TLC amongst our communities Mm -hmm. where we have to sit down, not just listen to ourselves, 
And but listen to each other. And as Mike said, it is difficult and this is going to be hard. So how do we do this? And you know, I've got certain questions that I think whites would would first they would come up. That's going to be my first wall. These are the questions and this is my argument. So I, I want to say how do we get past that? As whites? No, no, no. So no, let me let me disagree with you here, and I want to bring Bradley in because I, I I think Bradley deserves to be heard, um, but quickly, right? <laughs> so that we can bring the other guests into this conversation, because we don't. What we said in the past two shows, we don't just want to move forward from this without first dealing with it, without dealing with this discomfort mm-hmm. that's in the studio. No, the the, the so, comfort so has to be dealt with. No, but we on do need continual. to. But we do. We, we can't say no. This has been rehashed, and so we're done with it. Because the issues, the issues that underpin it have not been resolved. So we need to, so that's why I want to get back to Bradley and say, so Bradley, if that's the case, what is this thing of us wanting to move past it and? So, okay, so uh, Jordan, right? Yeah. So Jordan makes a good point and she says, how do we move forward with this, right? And I think, um, the first way of moving forward by this, from this is by really understanding what it is. And so what I would have, what I was, what I was intending to model in the conversation with Andrew, um, so it wasn't an attack on you, um, is exactly how it operates. That when the discomfort comes, the defense mechanisms start to build and we start to have padded stories about what, what else is happening now. Mm. So that's what I was trying to model to you. Mm, mm. Um, so <clears throat> one, just also in terms of my own brand, I just want to be clear that, you know, I, I didn't appreciate being um, the insinuation that I was not prepared for the show. I, I mean, you know what the brief was that was sent, what time it was sent, and I took the time mm. to um, look at this. And also um, as a clinical psychologist and a psychosocial commentator, I'm fully v- versed with this topic, right? So that's the first thing, which I think is my right to reply as a brand for my, in terms of my brand. So how do we move forward? This is what we want to know. And moving forward is the intention. That's what we want to do. So, for example, what are the conversations that Jordan and I need to have as people that are across racial barriers in terms of moving this forward, right? So the first thing is around listening to what each other are saying, right? And so the listening is going to be a two-sided thing. It's not a one-sided thing. Because as much as there's white privilege as well, there's also on the other side of the scale, there's what's called the <coughs> cognitive Excuse me, cause the cognitive miss, um, I can't think of the fancy word now, but I'd rather just keep it simple. So sometimes when we misinterpret situations, so for example, um, Andrew didn't invite me to the office party, but he invited everyone else, Gareth and everyone else that's in the room that's white. And then my first interpretation is that like, he didn't invite me because I'm black. So I'm excluded, right? Now that may be the circumstance, but it could also just be that he doesn't think I'm a nice guy. Not because I'm black, just I'm not a nice guy. But because it's all, um, it's a co, co, it's a, co, it's a, and, and you see, and, and, and now I'm experiencing the other side of what happens with white privilege, which is, uh, I'm a bit tongue tied now, I'm a bit flustered because of interaction with Andrew mm. specifically. You see, mm. so we're modeling that right here. Mm. Um, so let me just take a moment and bring that back and say that, um, you know, <clears throat> one, we need to have clearer conversations. We need to have very patient conversations. They are very difficult conversations to have. Let's be clear about that. Other places in the first world, like the US and that, they've had a much longer time to deal with this. And quite frankly, they're still not doing that very well with it. Mm-hmm. So we've had, what, 21, how many years now? We've had like, tw- you know, 20 years, 20 years more or less. And we're expecting us to have um, this super ability or competency to be able to work with this conversation. So the start is going to be to just have very simple open and honest conversations as Jordan was suggesting to us now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mark, are you still there? 
Yes, I'm here. So we just went through modeling exactly what might have happened on your farm, where, uh, you know, we were talking past each other. It was it was just difficult. It was awkward and so on. Tell us a bit about how you resolve that. You're a psychoanalyst as well. So you would have analyzed what just happened in studio. Um, you would have analyzed what was happening on the farm. How, how was that awkwardness uh, dealt with? I mean, somebody asked you and said, okay, you need to give the farm back to us now. Um, and here you are, I guess, carrying this thing that I'm trying to help here for Pete's sake. How did you deal with that? Well, um, I agree that we all want to... Um, move to solutions um, a, a little more quickly than than we're actually going to be able to, because it is horrible. You know, there's all sorts of misunderstandings. There are all kinds of suspicions and you know tensions between us, and they are things that we can't wish away. So when I came back to South Africa, I thought I'm just going to come up with a really good plan because I'm a really good person, and we're just going to move forwards. And what was needed was rather looking backwards and taking the time to understand what really happened and facing, you know, really um, unwelcome guilt and, and, and debt. You know, you don't want to come to the conclusion that actually you should be giving your farm back, let alone the conclusion that you don't want to. And therefore, you're not as nice and as good as you thought you were. You know, then you really are on a level playing field and you're doing a proper kind of negotiation emotional negotiation where you're being honest with each other and it takes time you know on this farm uh, i mean i've been back here for 15 years now and uh, i would say the first you know, four or five years um, was the process that was required for us to get to the, the point that we're at now so um, it does take time i think that if we don't do it and by the way i very much agree with the idea of, of many trcs we have exactly that here um, start, we started on my farm, but then, you know, you know, there are a number of us who are of like mind. We now have a thing called the Frontship Transformation Charter, where we, the community of this valley, are having our own TRC, where we're just telling our stories about how, what happened in our lives. And it's an enormously important uh, thing to go through, not huge, dramatic war crimes, you know, but just the ordinary humiliation and, and, and degradation and pain and resentment and feelings of inferiority and feelings of bitter resentment and so on, going through that and just listening. I think that there's no shortcut uh, for that. But I do think, uh, one what, what thing Bradley said, he said the golden boy that he was, you know, the sort of metaphorical golden boy uh, in New York that he was talking of, that he doesn't have to do anything. You know, things are working well for him. And at that point, I want to disagree with. I think that it always comes at a cost. You know, if you don't face the facts, you don't face the emotional facts of what you're responsible for, of, of how unfair it is that you have the advantages that you do and so on. You do things with those feelings, ways of, ways of avoiding those feelings, which, co- you know, which, which, which come back to bite you. And if your relationships with the people around you aren't clear, open, you know, safe relationships. It's horrible. Your life is horrible. If you're doing something that's not fair to others around you and you and you feel guilty about it and won't face up to that, it's horrible. It's a horrible way to live. And I think that's the sort of thing that we're experiencing in this country at the moment. And as you say, we had a little instance of it now um, in the studio. All of this stuff needs to be faced and there is a way out of it, but it just requires us to be a little bit more honest about ourselves. And It's not rocket science. Mark, uh, you you speak about this idea of sharing the wealth uh, with the the fellow farm workers. 
you know, I, I love the story, and I think it's quite, it must be quite difficult because, um, you know, a lot of these guys come from the DOP system where they were paid in, uh, in, in wine, where they, you know, they, they, they learn habitual habits of, of alcoholism, excuse me. Um, are these workers allowed to spend their money as they will? Their profits are theirs. They're, they're not governed. They're not controlled. If they earn 50,000 rand or a million rand that year from, from Solms Delta Wine, are they allowed to do with it what they please? Yes, we have a, we have a democratically elected set of committees uh, representing different sectors on the farm. And um, then we have a, one big collective meeting uh, where, where, where those different committees are represented. And uh, the 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 way in which the uh, funds uh, that the workers uh, trust uh, uh, gained from the um, deal that they did with me are very carefully taught, and it also needs a lot of time. You know, people need to be able to talk. But I was amazed at the what came out of that process because the single biggest um, expenditure of our farm workers' trust is on the education of the children. You know, it, people who poor. You, you, you want to change your life circumstances immediately, understandably. But to be able to, against that pressure, to, to be able to recognize that what's really going to change things is to in, make sure that your children's lives are not blighted in the ways that yours were, uh, was, is a is an in, in, in really impressive thing that was done on this farm. So that's the single biggest expense. It's sending the kids to fee-paying schools where they have after-school support from, from remedial teachers and homework support teachers and internet access and also a proper you know, preparation for school. We have a preschool. And uh, that, that's, uh, it is up to them to decide how they want to spend their money. But the truth is that's the main expenditure that they've made. Mark, let me let me cut in there. You know, I, I'm, I just want to surface a, a feeling of we have not gotten the most out of the show and, and particularly from my guests. So I'm hoping that we're going to get to invite them again because we are going to run out of time. But Jordan, you were you were in when you first spoke to us, you said, you know, don't say you know. Initially, you said black people can move to the rest of the continent. I can't. Then you said, no, 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 I can't. Let's not assume that white people can just up and leave. Uh, and Mark did that. So do you think his story is genuine? Because he says he only got his perspective from moving out the country. You say you can't necessarily move out the country. It, it, that, does his story sound genuine? No, his story definitely sounds genuine. Mm. My point that I made there was when you had that, that first guest um, who – she had a, a home. Tracy Lomax. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's broken into and she said, well, her perspective was, was that she could leave mm. and whereas blacks couldn't. I thought, well, I think that's very one-sided because I can't immigrate. Mm. I'm, I have to stay here. So do you so have a, do you have a farm to give away or to, to share as well? I do. It's very small. It's in my backyard. Okay. <laughs> I can't grow veggies on it. So maybe somebody else can. Are you going to do that? Yeah. Just that <laughs> box, huh? Just that piece. Why not, why not your whole house? Because, uh, as Mike said, that uh, this it's hard. How do you give up your house? How do you give up what you believe you have worked for? And and he's right. White people are not going to just give that up because they do believe. And I know we've spoken about this whole work thing. Mm -hmm. I have worked for that. I have paid money. I didn't just get that house. I have a bond on it. Yeah. You want to take that bond? That's fine. So I think uh, it's 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 a whole. Reset of thinking mm. and a whole way of getting around. And uh, Rory, I wanted to say to you, mm. what you said you wanted whites to struggle. What did you mean? I didn't say I want whites to struggle. When did I say I want whites you to did, struggle? On, on 
I have been writing for weeks. <laughs> <laughs> She's got her notes. Let's let's just okay. So let's let, let's get back to that. I, I'd love I'd love. Uh, we'll try and get the audio recording where I did say white. I want whites to struggle. Uh, let let's just get Bradley in here. So Bradley, what's surfacing here is it's a struggle for white people and so on. So how do we move past that? We don't have a lot of time, but how do we move? Uh, and it's a mindset thing. Clearly, the blockage is now at a mindset level. Sure. I get it. I want <coughs> to do something, but true. What you're asking me to do is hard. So short and succinct. Mm. Um, it is a struggle, and the struggle was demonstrated and, and modeled for us right here yes. in the studio. So that's that's truthful. We can analyze it at a different level, whatever the case may be. What I'm hearing, which I really have to point out, is not the correct correct way to go. White privilege is not about the assets that people have. And as um, Jordan says, she's worked hard for it. You know, she, she pays a bond on it. That's great. And who can take that away from her? I mean, we're not doing the land grabs that, that were happening in, in Zimbabwe, for example. That's not it. Um, what we're talking about is just acknowledging that there is a power differential which is at play. And that's all it takes. It's just acknowledging psychologically that, hey, you know what? Things may be a little bit better for me because I'm white in the setting. What does it take? So you as a it psychologist, takes, it you takes, have to it put takes, us on a couch. So what, it, what it takes willingness to change. That's the first thing. And if the person's not willing to change, it's not going to happen because then we'll continue to have padded conversations about why it shouldn't happen. So as Professor Sams was saying about if you're the golden boy, why do you have to change? And I want to correct that and say that actually there is a benefit not to change because if you are, say, in a class of 10 and you're at Harvard, class of 10 and you're, you're nine waspy boys and there's one Asian girl in the class, why would we need to change anything to make her feel better? Mm. We're not even feeling what she's feeling. Mark, uh, there's a disagreement there. Why do I, uh, this thing of you having to change? So you obviously disagreed with that. We don't have a lot of time. We've actually, we probably just have a minute for you to comment, Mark. Uh, I think we need to have another one of these, honestly. Um, is, so you, you made the decision to do something, but have you done enough? And is there more that you need to do, uh, Mark? Because as we said, it's not about just assets. It's about what it represents and going beyond that self-interest in the broader interest of society. How do you deal with that to get us to a point where we actually start to do meaningful things that transform our society? Well, um, I agree with Bradley that the first and foremost, you have to want to. And, um, you know, I think that it's in our own self-interest. And when I say our, I'm speaking as a privileged person. I think it's in the interests of the, of the privileged to face the unsustainability of their situation. So I think that you have to want to change because it's in your own self-interest to change. And then you know, the process begins. And um, speaking from my own experience, both, you know, as tr- having tried to do that myself, but also as a psychoanalyst, you know, having knowledge of how our minds work in general. The next important thing is to, you know, recognize your own foibles, to recognize that you're not as good and as nice and as, you know, and as committed to change as you think you are. I think having a little bit of self-doubt is probably the single most important asset as you go into this process. Thank you, Mark. Andrew, you're, you're, you're not looking happy, my friend. So no, let's, no, no. Let's, it's, uh, let, let fir- firstly, let, us, let me apologize to Bradley. I apologize, Bradley. I came across rude. Uh, it was, it wasn't to undermine who you are as a psychologist or your ability. Rather that the show needed, uh, had a focus and it seemed to go a little bit off focus. So let me apologize to you about that. Um, I, I sincerely mean that. I don't, I didn't mean to undermine you in any way. I appreciate you coming in and giving your views and I know that they are sound. We just wanted a little bit more of emotional feel rather than academic kind of understanding. But 
Having said that, I apologize. It wasn't the right thing to do. Apology accepted, and I think we, you actually got what you wanted. I think the inter- thank you. I think the interesting thing about this whole thing for me personally is that Eusebius said something to me uh, off air where he said it's not in the actions of people, but within the reactions that you really see what comes out. And I think that this show has shown me that I've still got a lot of work to do uh, because my reaction there was quite aggressive. Mm. And, I, and I, immediately I wanted to defend it mm. and say that it wasn't about white privilege, it was about this and the show, but it was in the reaction rather than the actions that I've taken. So, so I've learned something This here. is beautiful. And this is what I'm talking about. Go ahead. Can I just, Andrew, can, can I just say that what you have shown now, this is, this is all we're wanting, right? And it's not just for white people. Mm. Me, mm. as an exterior black person, I squirmishly also have to admit that I have a lot of privilege too. Yes, mm. I've worked for it. I've, you know, I didn't come from, from an affluent background or anything. I've worked for it. But it now makes me different to another black person who maybe is still from Soweto. And I have to address that sometimes. So I want to acknowledge you and say that that's exactly the work that we need to do. Mm. Jointly. And it's not one-sided. It's jointly. We needed to have this blowout for us to understand what this looks like. Brilliant. Can I say? It's literally, (laughs) Duncan is going to kick us out of the studio. So Say it quickly. Say it quickly. 10 seconds. I came here because I wanted us to set up a task group to facilitate these TLC talks in our community. Fantastic. You're coming back next week when we discuss this. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get out of here, Andrew. (laughs) Have yourself a lovely day. Episode 4, If White Privilege Fell, What Would It Look Like? Join us. Sisonke Msimang is in studio next week. Have yourself a good day. Ciao, ciao. Thank you so much to all our guests. Uh, here and in Cape Town, Mark Solms, uh, Bradley and Jordan, thank you so much for coming through. Have yourself a great day. Ciao, ciao. This is CliffCentral.com.